Well, welcome this solemn evening. I'm Father Sean Templeton, the rector here of St. Anselm Anglican Church, and I welcome you not just on behalf of St. <clears throat> Anselm, but also on behalf of um, the Society of King Charles, Saint and Martyr. And um, I also want to thank publicly uh, Mr. Badasowski. Did I get it right? I will get it right. I promise. <laughs> I'm Polish. There's no excuse for that. But uh, <clears throat> thank you, sir, for organizing the beautiful Scola and um, our music for this evening, as well as putting together the bulletin. Um, for those of you that are not aware, I am um, expecting my third child at any moment. And so I also want to thank Father Lutz, who is joining with us tonight and was going to um, pinch hit, as it were, if I needed to duck out. But here I am. And so I wanted to um, take this opportunity to welcome you first before giving the sermon for this night. Now, would you please join me in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, finisher of our faith. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Why would an American honor a British king? It's a fair question. It's one that I've been asked this week. After all, the United States fought two wars to rid ourselves of the British monarchy. And our Declaration of Independence states, quite frankly, that the history of the present king of Great Britain, that's George III, is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct, uh, the direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. It also restates that compelling argument of the Enlightenment luminary John Locke, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Better minds than my own have argued for and against the divine rights of kings. Locke, Filmer, Jefferson, Adams, the like. With most Americans coming down decidedly against such a proposition. Although I recently finished the biography of Samuel Seabury, who, if you know any history, was on the side of the king. If most know any history about the English Civil War at all, they're more likely to come down on the side of Cromwell than Charles Stuart. And yet Americans are fascinated by monarchy. Reuters estimated that 11.6 million Americans watched Queen Elizabeth's funeral service. Despite its 5 a.m. airing on CNN, 
CNN reported that 10 million Americans watched Charles III's coronation just last year. The TV show known as The Crown has been an enormous success. Though furiously autonomous, Americans are fascinated with monarchy and long for it. My aim tonight is not to mount a defense of monarchy, nor even to glorify Charles, although I think there are things to wonderfully emulate in him. But as a trained historian and political scientist, I have little patience for the many glowing hagiographies of so many of the saints which elevate them to worlds unattainable. Too often such mixtures of fable and truth cast doubt on the faith and bring despair rather than inspiring nobility. To pretend that Charles I was a man without flaw is to overlook the testimony of history, even those friendly to him. And of course, to overlook the theological reality that we all suffer from in our human condition. Contemporary and fellow martyr Archbishop Laud is recorded saying of Charles that he was a mild and gracious prince who knew not how to be or how to be made great. So no, my aim this night is to remember Charles as a man who embodied God's grace and, and was faithful to God's call. Charles was specifically called by God to be a Christian monarch. He was called in this life to wear a perishable crown. His call was specific, but God's call is universal. For as Charles was called to be a Christian monarch, each human being is called to a Christian vocation. Indeed, throughout life, we're called to have our Christianity shaped all sorts and all parts of our lives. Through his church, God has called Father Lutz and myself, perhaps even some of you, to be Christian priests. My new friend Davis is called to be a Christian organist, as is his wife Kelsey. You may be called to be a Christian doctor or a Christian nurse or perhaps a Christian IT engineer, a Christian teacher, or Christian electrician. In St. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, he writes in chapter 7, verse 17, only let everyone lead the life which the Lord has assigned him and in which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. What St. Paul's speaking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he's speaking to Jews and Greeks to those married and those single, to those free and those in bond service. And as I prepare several young people for baptism and confirmation here in this parish, these words rang particularly true this week, for they're memorizing the 1604 catechism that was published during Charles' father's reign, James I. Charles, no doubt, would have been familiar with it, Perhaps some of you are, for it's the catechism that came down to us, at least all the way to the 1928 Book of Common Prayer. One question is, what is thy duty towards thy neighbor? And the answer, 
My duty towards my neighbor is to love him as myself and to do to all men as I would that they do unto me, to love, honor, and succor my father and mother, to honor and obey the king and his ministers, to submit myself to all my governors, teachers, spiritual pastors, and masters, to order myself lowly and reverently to all my betters, to hurt nobody by word or deed, to be true and just in all my dealing, to bear no malice nor hatred in my heart, to keep my hands from picking and stealing, and my tongue from evil speaking, lying and slander, to keep my body in temperance, soberness and chastity, not to covet nor desire other men's goods, but learn and labor truly to get mine own living and to do my duty in that state of life unto which it shall please God to call me. Let me repeat that last line. But to learn and labor truly to get mine own living and to do my duty in that state of life unto which it shall please God to call me. The idea of submitting ourselves to the duty of our state of life, to our betters, to our spiritual or temporal authorities, to anything really, seems old-fashioned and quaint. Directly, it confronts the radical individuality of our modern American culture. I've been struck repeatedly by just how different the older catechisms are. Indeed, how our older catechisms, not just in Anglican Christianity, but all forms of Christianity, are from those today. As the students memorize this old catechism and repeat its words, the Christian and myself, as the priest, is reminded that the self must be restrained. The human self is very much able to fall to the deadly deceits and not resist the world and its passions or the flesh. Very easily, we as human beings are reduced from justice and right order to, quite frankly, a mess, overtaken by our pleasures, overtaken by our desires and passions. How much this contrasts with the version of Christianity we see rampant in churches today, in pastors today, in voices in our nation today. Somehow justice has been warped and made a servant of passions and desires rather than the other way around. And the path of right order, we're told, contains no order at all, no submission at all. The order of today is self-indulgence, delusions of modernity that one's self is the center of all things, an avoidance of pain, a rejection of anything that we, in our fallenness, seem to think would come up against our happiness. Of course, the great irony is that unfettered self-definition, self-actualization, and the self must be set free from restraints and the inhibition that brings about, and that brings about despair 
and meaninglessness. That is, if we live into that modern definition, our life becomes full of despair and meaninglessness. And that's borne out statistically. Dr. Jeff Myers, who is an area of research of family ministry, recently remarked that 75% of young adults say they have no purpose. Think about that. That's not children. That's young adults. 75% of adults believe that they have no purpose. A Christianity with no anchor or truth or end in God is no Christianity at all. In fact, it's no proper religion at all. Is it any reason, is it any wonder that people are turning away from such Christianity? Why waste one's time? Simply to soothe the symptoms of meaninglessness? Simply to assuage the soul on the way to oblivion? It doesn't make any sense to submit oneself to something which simply points back at oneself. Now, lest you think that I've gone far afield in my point on this, Charles I was not a man led by self-actualization. Quite the opposite. Neither was he a Christian of the modern sort. Charles was a man of principle. He was a man with meaning. A man whose life was deeply meaningful to him because of his family, because of his friends, because of his kingdom. He was a man for whom his duty to God as a Christian monarch came first. And we celebrate him today as a martyr not because he was a king that was killed by an illicit and unjust court, although that's true, but because he would not abdicate the state to which God had called him. And as part of that, he would not agree to the abolition of bishops and therefore the historic church in England. Charles could have saved himself. Do you know that? As historian and Bishop Creighton of London wrote in 1895, had Charles been willing to abandon the church and give up his episcopacy, he might have saved his throne and his life. But on this point, Charles stood firm. For this he died, and by dying, saved it for the future. Other historians and contemporaries of Charles I testify that while he was willing to compromise on other terms, he could not abandon the church that he'd inherited from his father or lay aside his duty towards her. This was the state to which God had called him. This was the state in which he must be faithful. He was a Christian monarch and defend the church and to defend the church against his modern and possibly blasphemous innovations, he had to die. Such an act is so foreign to our world, particularly our political world, driven by pragmatism and expediency, isn't it? In an age where politicians are expected or even applauded for bearing false witness, and even clergy make light of God's commandments, it's hard to believe anyone would go to his death over a matter of principle, let alone a king to give up his crown and his life for the church. 
It's well and good to celebrate Charles for this act. But ought we not also to honor him by imitation? If not to honor him, then ought we to honor our common king, Jesus Christ, whom Charles pointed to? The Lord Jesus is the word of God and the truth that anchors all things and gives meaning to all life. His kingship does not stop in the heavens. It extends here to this world, to your and my lives. He loves us. He loves you. He also calls us, as the old catechism and St. Paul write, to be faithful in that state of life to which we've been called. It is this thing that gives my life and that gives your life, dear friend, meaning. It is this thing that gives my life and your life significance. To remain faithful to that which you've been called, not to invent something new. As C.S. Lewis observed in 1943, the man who cannot conceive of a joyful and loyal obedience on the one hand nor an unembarrassed and noble acceptance of that obedience on the other. The man who has never even wanted to kneel or to bow is a prosaic barbarian. Contrary to what our modern culture tells us, the lives to which we've been called, our vocations, our duties, our various obligations, are actually what give us Reasonably, reasonable happiness in this life, as the prayer book says, and full happiness in the next. None of us will experience the weight and duty of being a king, I would add, oh, thank God. But many of us experience the work and weight of laboring truly for our own living. Many of us experience doing the work that a Christian must do that gives a particular type of joy to his life or her life in the service of Jesus the King. Some of us made vows as clergy or as spouses. If you're a Christian, you've made vows to the Lord and to his church. Far from being impediments to our happiness, these duties, these vows, these things are what give us meaning or what give our lives meaning. When we fail to live as Christians in the state to which God's called us, forgiveness and grace is plenteous, be assured. But when we fail, we should once again stand up, pick ourselves up, or ask for the Lord to pick us up, and walk forward because not only does our own good depend on it, but the good of those around us whom we love depends upon it. As the famous Whig, notori, Edmund Burke wrote, The author of our being is the author of our place in the order of existence. And that having disposed and marshaled us by a divine tactic, not according to our will, but according to his, he has, and by that disposition, virtually subjected us to act the part which belongs to the part assigned to us. We have obligations to mankind at large, he continues, which are not in consequence of any special voluntary compact. They arise from the relations of man to man and the relation of man to God. 
which relations are not a matter of choice. How much more meaning would our lives have in our own perception? And how much more reasonably happy would we be in our own estimation as we see ourselves we spent less time trying to remake ourselves frustrated and more time accepting our situation to that which we've been called and instead trying to live more faithfully in it in our duty towards God. Let us not squander our heritage but look to bigger things. Look to the larger picture. What if there are things worth living for and things worth dying for. I'll say that again because I think our culture has become so cynical on this point. What if there are things worth living for and things worth dying for, dear Christian friend? When he awoke on the day of his execution on January 30th, King Charles called it his second wedding day. As before the night, I hope to be espoused to my blessed Jesus, he said. Charles then declared his confession of faith in the Church of England and noted that he had both a good cause and a gracious God. When Bishop Juxton reminded him that Charles had but a brief moment before heaven, Charles comforted him with his last words. I go from a corruptible to an incorruptible crown. Remember. Dear Christian, or perhaps dear person who may yet become a Christian, you and I too can have meaning of life in this life and in the next. Both the king and you and I are to look to the bigger picture. Both the king and the beggar have equal access to the king of the universe. If you have not yet accepted the king of the universe's kingship, you can. If you have fallen down in your service to him, he's there to lift you up, to forgive and restore you. But let us run the race that God has set before us, that we too might receive the crown incorruptible. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.